Well, this morning, um, as I said, we're continuing with our global month. And um, over the last few weeks, as I think many of us have been, yeah, you know, watching news, seeing things happen and people posting things on social media. And I'm sure, um, like me, many of you have been quite confused and quite overwhelmed by everything that is happening uh, over in the Middle East as this situation unfolds. Personally, I have not only seen people share um, on social media to raise awareness, but I've also seen people share false and misinformation to highlight their personal views and agendas. But one thing's for sure, this the situation that is happening there is um, much more complex than we first thought. Well, this morning, I'm especially thankful to God for his orchestration uh, because a couple of months ago when I was organizing uh, Global Month, I actually asked Dr. Bernie to come and speak to us. Um, but it wasn't because of what was happening. It was just because I really felt God sense, you know, sense that God was saying, yeah, like, why not get him and who was going to speak on a completely different topic. Um, but yeah, it just so happens that we have Dr. Bernie today and he's an expert in Islamic studies. Um, so we will not only be, he will not only be giving us some context and history and insight and some ways that we can um, respond as Christians, but it will help, hopefully help us to navigate uh, what our role is in, in, in all of this. So together with his family, Dr. Bernie served as a missionary among Muslims for over 20 years in Asia and the Middle East. And with his wealth of experience, um, he currently lectures in Islamic studies at the Melbourne School of Theology and continues to engage with Muslims in Melbourne and around the world. Now, Bernie's passion is to teach Christians about Islam and to teach Muslims about Jesus. And he has written a number of Christian books on Islam as well as storytelling in the Bible. And he's always one of our most popular elective speakers at Activate Conference. So would you put your hands together and join me in welcoming Dr. Bernie Power. Let me pray. Oh, can I get someone to grab a little table for me? Thank you. Lord God, we thank you for this morning, God. We thank you for your orchestration and everything that we do and every little detail in our lives, God. And even in the way that you are bringing people to come into our midst to speak your word and your truth, God. And this morning, I just want to pray for Dr. Bernie, Lord, as he shares your heart with us, God, as he helps us to navigate the complexities of what is happening in the world, Lord, and how we as Christians can respond and can uh, be your servants, Lord, um, in, in, uh, yeah, in, in the furthering of your kingdom, Lord. And so, God, we pray that you would anoint his lips, Lord. You would help us to listen with our hearts, God, and with our spirits, Lord, and be courageous to step forward and respond to what your spirit is speaking to us about this morning. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time we have together, Lord, and we pray that you would be with and speak through Bernie. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, great to be with you this morning. 
I get the privilege of uh, speaking at different churches and I join in the worship. It is just spectacular here what God has given to you in terms of gifts and abilities and, and just this real sense of people wanting to glorify him and lift up his name and serve him. So it's a real privilege and an honour for me to be here addressing you this morning. I'm going to ask you to do something unusual. You know how when you're told you go to church and they tell you to turn off your phone? I'm going to ask you to do the opposite. Could you turn your phones on? Um, And there's a good reason for that, um, or probably a couple. One is that um, we're going to have a time of um, questions, uh, a QA, and a but it'll be a dynamic one. So you can... um, uh, text your questions to me at any time. Often, you know, you go to a, uh, a talk and you think, oh, I've got a really good question, I'd like to ask that afterwards, and you can't remember it. Just text it to me now and it'll come up onto my phone there. The, uh, you grab that number up there, that's my, my phone number. Um, please, please don't give it to any of those marketing people who are going to ring me every day. <laughs> They've already got it, thanks, yeah. <laughs> As we look at the... Let's see. Are we up there? Great, yeah. As we look at the situation that's unfolding in Israel and Gaza, many people are wondering, how did this all come about and what's going on? I'll try to give you a bit of background into this very confusing situation and then draw out some implications for us as Christians. I've been to Israel four times. We used to live in um, Jordan, next door to Israel, and travelled across there. Our first visit was there back in the 1980s when my wife and I, newly married, um, without much money, did some travelling, and we had had to actually hitchhike around Israel because we didn't have any money for bus fares. Um, We probably wouldn't do that now. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe we would. Um, But And also travelled there and taken groups there in more recent years. So I've been there and um, know the situation a bit. It's a, a very difficult one to talk about Israel and uh, and the Holy Land, the Promised Land with Christians. I uh, mentioned to my colleagues that I was invited to speak this morning and I was going to talk about that. And one of them said, no, no, don't talk about that. You'll split the congregation down the middle. But if I could, willing to hitchhike around Israel, I'll even try this one. So today I want to give you two, start off by giving you two different perspectives, two different views about the Holy Land that you might find amongst Christians and I imagine you would find in this congregation. The first one for, is the idea that the return to the land is the fulfilment of prophecy. God says to Abraham, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be your God. And for many people, that's it. That, that's the answer. Is God has granted the land to Israel. It's theirs forever. But there's another perspective which says, well, actually, that was a promise, but all the promises of God are conditional, including this one. God says in Leviticus, if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations before you. Um, And uh, Joshua repeats this, if you violate the covenant and serve other gods, you'll quickly perish from the good land God has given you. And there's other verses about this in, in uh, in the Old Testament. I've listed some of those. But the view one people quickly respond with, yes, that's true, and they were taken out of the land, because, but God also promised that they would return. 
And again, they quote many promises in the prophets about the return. This one in Jeremiah 24. I will be found by you and I will bring you back from captivity and will gather you from all the nations and I will bring you back to the place where I carried you into exile. And again, many verses about this in the Old Testament. And in response to this, the second view says, yes, they did return after 70 years because God always keeps his promises. But there was something else that was going on in the Old Testament. And they point to a pattern which was illustrated in this, this diagram by the a Christian theologian. His name was H.L. Ellison. He was actually from a Jewish background, but was a Christian theologian. And he pointed out that the 12 tribes arrived in the Promised Land after the Exodus, <clears throat> but due to their disobedience, 10 were deported by the Assyrians in 722, and they got lost among the nations. So they talk about the lost tribes of Israel. These were the 12 tribes um, that were lost after that. And then about 150 years later, in uh, 587, um, the two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were taken by the Babylons and exported. And in their place, the Assyrians and Babylonians brought many other people into the land of, of Israel. After that, a, a, a remnant, after 70 years, a remnant of the two tribes returned and they rebuilt the temple. It had been destroyed um, by the Babylonians and so they re rebuilt it. But this view points out there's two major themes going on in the Old Testament. The first one is the increasing sin and disobedience of Israel. And so it's decreasing availability and suitability to be God's chosen instrument to be a light to the nations. Israel was never chosen by God for their own benefit, but in order that they might be a light to the nations. And there's now fewer and fewer of them. And at the same time, we see in the Old Testament an increasing number of prophecies about the Messiah. There's about 400 of them, and it starts off in Genesis and goes all the way through to Malachi. We see more and more prophecies about the Messiah. And Ellison put these two together in, in this diagram. He points out that Jesus is the one who stands at this center point there. He is the Messiah that has been promised. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus chooses 12 apostles. Now, the number is significant because 12 was the number of tribes of Israel. And then he sends out 70 or 72 disciples. And this, again, the number was significant because it mirrored the numbers of the nations in the world found in Genesis 10. So this Jesus responding to the Old Testament. And then he says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel was called to be the light to the nations. Jesus comes along as the Messiah and says, I am the light of the world. And then he says to his followers, you are the light of the world. And so we see this complete changeover. Well, view one, Christians respond and they say, yes, but the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. When God says something, he will, com he will complete it. And they point to verses like in Isaiah 2, verse 2. It says, In the last days the mountain on the Lord's temple will be established and all the nations will stream to it. And they note too that the apostles in the Old Testament prophecies quoted them as though they had not yet been fulfilled. 
For example, in Acts 15, James, the brother of Jesus, quotes Amos 9, where it says, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild. I will restore it, says the Lord, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who bear my name. And Jesus, in in Matthew 24, he says to his disciples, You will see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He's talking about something in the future. And there is an end times uh, villain uh, called the man of lawlessness who says in Thessalonians, will set himself up in God's temple. And so this view, one Christian says, so how can these prophecies be fulfilled unless the temple has been rebuilt? A precursor to the coming of Christ, they say, must be the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem by the Jews. Jesus had prophesied that the temple, that the Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, and Paul also talked about that. And they say, and then, um, and then all Israel will be saved. And these view one Christians say that the view two Christians are engaging in what they call replacement or supersessionist theology. Um, where the promises to Israel have been taken from the Jews and applied to the Christians and spiritualized. It's also called covenant theology. In reply to this, the view two Christians say, well, actually, it does say all all Israel will be be saved, but not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And so the promises don't apply to every single Jew, but to the nation as a whole. They believe there'll be a a, a great messianic movement towards Christ uh, at the end times, but it doesn't need to occur in the Holy Land and it doesn't require the rebuilding of the temple. There are some messianic uh, congregations here in in Melbourne. I've been along to some of them. And we're seeing this great movement to Christ amongst the, the Jewish people. And they say this view is not what you call replacement theology, but fulfillment theology. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And Paul says, uh, Christ is the end of the law. The, the, the term there in Greek is telos. It means the end goal. He's the fulfillment of the law. And Paul says, no matter how many promises there are in Christ, of God there are, they are, find their yes in Christ. And so it goes on, and in fact we could spend all day just talking about these two perspectives. And I just want to make the point that both of them are built from very strong biblical bases, and you'll find um, faithful, Bible-believing Christians and uh, insightful theologians on both sides of, uh, of these views. Throughout, uh, throughout history, uh, Christians have actually held these different views about, about Israel and about the land, whether it's there as an eternal promise or whether maybe it's a, a political place where the Jews could go to live in safety. And I'll talk about that later. And despite this, Christians have been able to live uh, and to get along and worship and serve the Lord in the same churches. And I think that's an important one that we need to hold because a lot of people will be talking about this perspective or that perspective and to say, well, ultimately we are Christians. Our, our identity in Christ is more important than those particular perspectives, although they do have implications. What Christians do agree on is what happened after, uh, afterwards. 
the, uh, the, the real estate of Israel has been a place which has been hotly disputed by many nations. In the centuries after Christ, many nations controlled the land of Israel as they had beforehand. It's always been a place where na different nations have gone through. And I want to talk about some of the uh, important ones uh, that um, affect the way that things are now. Following the revolt by the Jews in 70 AD, which Jesus, by the way, foretold, he said, the temple will be destroyed. He, he foresaw that. The Romans pulled it down and they massacred 100,000 Jews. And in 135 AD, um, and 50 years later, 55 years later, in, res in response to another revolt, the Roman Emperor Hadrian ordered all the Jews out of Jerusalem and he renamed it Aelia Capitolina. And he gave the province of Judea a new name, which was Syria Palestina. It was the Syrian Palestine. This was based on the name of the, the Philistines who had been there, one of the Canaanite peoples who'd been there before, uh, the, before the exodus, the uh, entry into, into the, the Holy Land. And the Roman emperor was trying to eradicate any kind of Jewish nature uh, from, the, from the land of Israel by, by pushing the Jews out and giving it this new name. This is where the name Palestine came from. The conversion of Constantine and the growth of Christianity meant that the land of Israel became a Christian-ruled land. Jews were present there. At times they were there in small numbers, as low as 10 to 15%. At other times they were the majority. But there has been a continuous Jewish presence in the land through all of these centuries. A big change came in 637 with the arrival of the Muslim invaders. So Muhammad, according to the Hadith, had gone to Jerusalem on a miraculous journey and he had been to and he'd stood on the Temple Mount on a rock there and he'd risen up into heaven, according to um, Islamic texts. And the dome of the rock, the golden dome you can see there in the middle, was built there in commemoration of that. Inside, you can't go in there nowadays if you're a Christian, but I was able to go in there before they made that rule. And you can see the rock, and it's got a mark in it there. And they said that was Muhammad's footprint. From there, he stood on that rock and went up into heaven. And so now, Jews and Christians and Muslims all claim Jerusalem as their, as their holy city. It's the third holiest shrine in Islam. The, um, the Jews banned the building of new synagogues and churches because they believed that Islam had superseded um, Islam, uh, Christianity and Judaism, and they taxed the Jews and the Christians very heavily. And over the years, many Jews and Christians converted to Islam to avoid the heavy taxes. That was a burden beyond what they could bear, and so they became Muslims. The Jews were forbidden from worshipping on the Temple Mount. That policy remained in place for over a thousand years. Remember, the temple had been destroyed and this new uh, Islamic shrine and then also a mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, were built on that place. But throughout this period, again, there were significant populations of Jews in the Holy Land. The Jews must be the most consistently persecuted people in history. They were discriminated against by Christians in Europe um, and by Muslims in the Middle East, in North Africa and Spain. And periodically there were massive pogroms or massacres of Jews in the thousands and sometimes even hundreds of thousands of Jewish people were killed. 
And so over the centuries, the idea of finding a secure place for the Jews to live was proposed. Initially, they talked about um, Argentina and Uganda, as well as Palestine, as places for the Jews to live. But eventually, Palestine got the final vote due to its historical association with the Jews. And after the first Zionist conference, so Zionism is this um, Jewish concept that the Jews must return to Zion, Mount Zion, um, and live there. The conference was held in Basel in Switzerland in 1897. And then after that, many Jews began moving into Palestine. Remember, there had been Jews before. They more began to settle in. And they bought land from the Ottoman rulers. So Ottoman was the Turkish, uh, the Muslim Turkish um, Empire at that time, and from Arab landlords. So a lot of the initial land was bought. But this idea actually wasn't popular even amongst some Jews. Uh, some of them totally opposed the idea of a Jewish state. In 1885, the Pittsburgh Conference, so Pittsburgh from the US Conference of Reform View said, we consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community. And we therefore expect neither a return to Palestine, nor a sacrificial worship under the sons of Aaron, nor any restoration of any of the laws concerning a Jewish state. So Muslims have also got divisions amongst themselves about this whole issue of whether the Jews need to return to the Holy Land. One time in Jerusalem, when I was walking around there, I walked around a corner and there was this massive banner and it had on it, Zionism and Judaism are diametrically opposed, which was very interesting because this is the place where Jews have been fighting to, to establish themselves and this particular group of people said that the religious ideas and the political ideas need to be completely separated. So there's not always unanimity amongst the Jews about this. Most of them would, but there are a minority who don't believe that they should. During World War I, the Ottoman Turks who had sided with the Germans were defeated, and in 1922, Palestine was placed under British rule by the League of Nations. That was a, the organisation which was the precursor to the United Nations. And in 1917, the British government uh, issued the Balfour Declaration. Uh, David Balfour was the... Um, Foreign Secretary for, for Britain, and it said, His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment of Palest in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. So this was a kind of a limitation. They were happy for the Jews to go there. In fact, they wanted to establish it, but not to affect the rights of those who were already there. The non-Jewish communities were, by the way, the Muslim, uh, Arabs, but also Palestinian Christians. At the turn of the century, at the turn of last century, about 10% of the Palestinians were Christian, 10% of the occupants of Palestine. They have churches there um, that have been there for a long time. But the Holocaust in uh, after the Second World War brought about the extermination of 6 million Jews by the Nazis, and this resulted in a massive uh, migration into, into Palestine. And the United Nations, which had been newly formed, came up with a plan in 1947 to divide the country into two parts. 
and the Jews were allocated the land, that's the, um, the orange part there, much of it was previously Jewish-owned land, land that they had moved in and bought and settled in, or public land. And the Arabs were also allocated Arab-owned land. The uh, proportions weren't quite equal. About, it went about 50-50, but the Jews were probably only about 30% of the population at that time. But um, Israel is quite an arid place, and a lot of the things, uh, there's places that are good to grow things down on the coast, but other places aren't so good. And so we see this um, international rule coming in and saying, this is how the, the, the land is to be divided up, establishing a new state. In response to this, in 1948, the state of Israel was declared on May the 14th. And the Jews said, finally, we have our homeland. We have a place to live. We have a flag. So they developed the, the flag. And um, we uh, and we now have a nation, uh, a place for, for people to come. The very next day, um, in 1948, May the 15th, Arab armies from Lebanon and Syria and Egypt and Jordan, sorry, uh, Egypt, Jordan, um, Saudi Arabia and Yemen attacked the Jews. They invaded the country from every side and they began fighting. In the fighting, 700,000 Jews were forced out of the Arab, Arab lands and the same number of Arabs were forced out of the Jewish lands. Prior to this, they'd been kind of living together, kind of coexisting, but uh, now there was a clear separation. But after a 10-month war, Israel was victorious and they occupied 60% of the area which had been allocated to the Palestinians. It went badly for the Arabs. They thought that they were going to destroy the Jews, but in fact the Jews went in and they took over 60% of the land which was allocated to the Palestinians. And that's where we get the term occupied West Bank from. The area that's there in the dark green is called the West Bank. And the one in the bottom, uh, bottom right of the map is Gaza. They also overran that. That was also a Palestinian, Palestinian area. In the coming years, one million Jews were expelled from Arab countries in response to this. Um, and um, two-thirds of them went to live in Israel. 1.5 Palestinians still live in refugee camps in the West Bank and Gaza, and I've been to visit some of these and talk with the people. And they've also moved to places like Jordan and Lebanon and Syria. And they hoped, when I talked to them, they said, we want to go back to our land, in, to our homes in Palestine. And the Arabs called this a Nakba, the, the catastrophe. I'll just have a look at what questions have come up so far and um, respond to those. Okay. Oops. Got that one in here. Okay. Um, all right. Is the temple of God referring to believers of God rather than the physical temple? In Corinthians, it stated that we are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Yeah, and that would be the view of the, the uh, perspective of the view to Christians. They would say when Jesus. Um, spoke about the temple being destroyed, he said that this temple will be rebuilt, referring to himself. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the people, you are the temple of God. The view one Christians would say, yes, that's true, that's a spiritual reality, but there's also physical realities that we need to work towards. And so they would be encouraging 
um, the development of Israel and the protection, and they expect that one day the temple will be rebuilt. So that, that's where the different perspectives. One is takes a very kind of physical approach. The other one takes a, a spiritual kind of approach. So Israel, we see, now has got more control of the, uh, the land than they had initially been granted. Um, but the um, United Nations kind of accepted that and they, they, they gave a mandate and they said these are the areas, these, and they call them occupied Palestinian areas, they need to be under Palestinian control even though Israel militarily controlled them. Fighting continued over the years and in 1967 the Palestinian Liberation Organisation or the PLO was formed by Yasser Arafat to represent the Palestinians and a rival Marxist group called the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine was also formed. Um, this was a, a Marxist group. They had no religious kind of bent, although they were all Arabs. And both of these groups were committed to the liberation of Palestine by armed struggle and to the destruction of Ju Jerusalem. Uh, of Sorry, the destruction of, of uh, the Jews. And so they engaged in many high-profile terrorist attacks. And those of you who are older may remember some of the planes that were hijacked, some of the bombings through the 1970s and 80s. The PLO was well known as a terrorist organisation. Hundreds of Jews and many others were killed in these attacks. And they had a theological reason for this. Under Sharia law, any land that has ever been occupied by the Muslims must remain forever under Muslim control. So Islamic groups can never accept the legitimacy of Jewish rule anywhere in Palestine because it was ruled uh, by, the, um, by the Turks from um, 700, 600 AD to 1900 AD. So 13 uh, centuries of Islamic rule, you can't just overturn that. This must be forever Islamic uh, land. That's, that's what they say. In response to um, the attacks, the Arab threats and the closing of the Suez Canal, um, Israel attacked the surrounding Arab nations. Uh, when this happened, they, they had um, Arab nations, troops um, on every border around them. And so they engaged in a preemptive strike, an attack, uh, a surprise attack, and this was called the Six-Day War. I remember I was probably a teenager at this time. This was the first time that Israel came to my attention, just seeing this incredible war. Israel, um, outnumbered by about 100 to 1, 3 million Jews, 300 million Arab nations around them. They actually seized the Sinai Peninsula, took it from uh, Egypt and Gaza, they took the West Bank and all of Jerusalem from Jordan and they took the Golan Heights from Syria. It was an incredible military victory, just amazing kind of thing. And a lot of people saw, well, this is a sign that God is with Israel. The United Nations didn't see it that way. They passed a resolution saying that um, Israel needed to... Um, uh, that Israel needed to return to its borders, the ones that had been set. They called it the Green Line. Israel did ultimately return 90% of these occupied lands, as the map shows. It took a couple of years. Uh, you can see the area that the, the brown areas were the parts that they had occupied. 
um, and they'd handed that back. But they refused to return the remaining 10%, saying that they needed to control these lands for their own security. And this is the basis for saying that Israel is illegally occupying Palestine. The Palestinians uh, divided into... Uh, fractured into different groups. There was the secular PLO that we mentioned before. Its main faction was Fatah. But there were also radical Islamic groups. The Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad, this was the one that actually fired the rocket that landed in the hospital, killing 500 people. It's now been recognised that was a, a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket. There was Hamas, uh, formed in 1987, and the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. These groups, by the way, don't get on with each other. They often kill each other, um, and there's been hundreds that have been killed in fighting between these. But none of them accept the existence of Israel, and all of them are committed to using terrorism to promote their goals. And you can see the large number of guns and swords that there are on their flags. The Hamas charter says, Allah is our target, um, the Prophet is our example, the Quran is our, our constitution, Jihad is our path, and death for the sake of Allah is the loftiest of our wishes. So for them, the suicide dying as a martyr is um, uh, an important thing, a positive thing in their sight. There's been several attempts to bring peace in, the, uh, in, uh, in Israel and Palestine. Probably the most effective one was um, the Oslo Accords, brokered by Bill Clinton in 1993 between Israel and Palestine. The West Bank was then divided up into a complex patchwork of Palestinian and Israeli-controlled areas. They called them A, B and C. Some were jointly controlled. And the PLO and the elected Palestinian Authority pledged to stop all terrorist activity. So here we had the government in Palestine saying, we will no longer uh, be involved in, ter in territory, in uh, terrorism, and we recognise Israel's right to exist. But unfortunately, in 2018, they, they withdrew this and they said, we are now committed to, again, the destruction of Israel. From the 1980s, there were um, over 100 bombings by Palestinian groups in Israel, resulting in hundreds of Jewish deaths. Israel responded with military action. So when there was a bombing, Israeli troops would go into the Palestinian areas looking for the people responsibly, responsible for it. Um, and usually in those raids, people would be killed. And I looked at the, the maths. Typically, for every Jew that was killed in a bombing, three Palestinians would be killed in the raid that was going after them. So in 2002, Israel began the construction of a large separation barrier, up to nine metres high and over 700 kilometres long. They said they, they were building this to keep the suicide bombers out. They'd had hundreds of these coming in. They wanted to keep them out. It often cut through Palestinian villages. It separated farmers from their fields. And it was deemed unlawful by the International Court of Justice. But it radically reduced the number of suicide bombings. It had its effect of reducing the violence within inside Israel. Israel deals with Palestinians in two ways. 
It's ruled those in the Palestinian area, such as Gaza and the West Bank, who are actually under Palestinian government control with an iron hand. There are checkpoints, and if you travel around Israel, there's often you'll come across a military checkpoint. Um, these ones will often empty buses out and get people to show their passport. And for Palestinians, they get treated quite differently to, um, uh, to non-Palestinians. I was travelling on a bus once um, with a, a going down to Bethlehem and we went to a checkpoint. Um, and when they got in there, they said, everybody else off the bus except for you, because I had an Australian. And I said, I'll get off the bus with them too. And so I stood there and went through with the whole thing of checking and then being fed back on. And the Palestinians said, this happens to us every day. We're constantly being stopped, constantly being harassed. And these actions have given... Oh, the other thing is that the um, Israelis have built Jewish settlements in Palestinian areas, areas, although these are illegal under international law. And so these actions have given Palestinians many reasons to despise the Jewish presence in Palestine and to feel contempt for all Jews. It's really um, a divisive thing. Many of the times I travelled there, you had no sense of it. Um, in Jerusalem, you'll have a Jewish shop next door to a Palestinian shop and they'll talk with each other and things will go well. But when something happens, a bombing typically, um, then that everything, the, the temperature raises and it's really quite a difficult time. I think it's important to know whether you agree that um, Israel is in the Holy Land because of God's promise, that's the view one, or whether they're there as, as because it's a political reality, because the Jews need a safe place to live. That doesn't mean that Israel will always do the right thing. Um, in the Old Testament, we see God often, and the prophets often, criticising Israel for the things that they did, the things that they said. And so we judge people not by who they are, but by what they do. And I think that's an important one. I mentioned that Israel has two ways of dealing with uh, the Palestinians. About 20% of Israeli citizens are actually Palestinian Arabs. So they are people um, from an, speak Arabic from an Arab background, but they live in the Jewish um, areas. They have full vote, voting rights. They are members of the parliament, the Knesset. They are generals in the Islamic army, uh, sorry, in the Israeli army. Um, they would be Muslims, but they would still be generals in the um, Israeli army. Ambassadors, they are Supreme Court judges. They can collect Israeli welfare and pensions. I remember one time hitchhiking, getting picked up by one of these. And I said, how do you feel being a, a, an Arab person living here? He said, well, I'm an Israeli Arab. I have all the rights of every other citizen here. So we, we see, <clears throat> see these two perspectives happening there, happening there in the country. But many Israeli Arabs claim that the implementation of the, jaw, of the law always favours the Jews. Israel handed uh, Gaza back to the Palestinians in 2005. And there was widespread corruption in the Palestinian Authority, the group that organised it, ruled over um, the West Bank and Gaza. And um, Hamas won the elections in Gaza, so they then became the government of Gaza in 2007. They haven't held any elections since, although they're supposed to hold elections every three years. But they say, you know, vote, uh, vote and then only vote once. You only get one opportunity and then they will prevent any voting from happening again. We support a limited democracy, is their term. The Hamas government is not popular with its people. It rules them very harshly. 
the Gaza Strip receives one of the highest levels of international aid per capita in the world. So there's a lot of money going in, and yet many of the inhabitants live in dire poverty. I actually tried to go into Gaza the last time I was there, but I was not given permission to do that. But um, each day or each week, 18,000 Gazans travel out of Gaza into Israel for work, where they get jobs and they will go back with their money into Gaza. Hamas has fought several wars against Israel. The attack on October the 7th was the latest and the most deadly one. Gaza has said they fired 7,500 rockets into Israel. I did some maths. These cost about $6,000 each. That's $45 million of rockets that have been fired onto Israel just in this last week. And yet the country is, is really in a difficult situation. Cement that's been uh, donated for building schools and hospitals and steel used for construction has been used to construct 500 kilometres of underground tunnels within Gaza to manufacture and store explosives. So when Israel goes in, and I expect that will happen during this week, they're going to face a very difficult military uh, uh, situation there. One possible reason for this Hamas attack, besides their hatred for Israel and their commitment to destroy it, was the increasing number of treaties that Israel has signed with several Arab countries. The Abraham Accords, involving mutual recognition and trade, were signed by Israel with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, um, Morocco and Sudan under Donald Trump in 2020. And the Palestinians, who normally look to the Arabs for their support, have felt that that's quickly disappearing. And there are, were recognition talks happening between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and they thought this might happen, and maybe that was the trigger for this particular attack. But whatever the reason, there can be no justification for, in Hamas, by Hamas for these horrific atrocities that were carried out two weeks ago. Between 1,500 and 2,000 Hamas militants invaded Israel and they had orders to kill as many people as they could. We know this because on the bodies of some of the um, uh, Hamas fighters that were found, they had written instructions and this was one of them. Kill as many people as you can. So they went in and they did that. 1,400, mostly civilian, uh, Jewish civilian Jews were killed. Babies were machine gunned in their cots. Women were raped and nearly 2,000 were taken, sorry, 200 were taken as hostages. These were criminal acts. People say, well, does Israel have a right to respond? Can't they just simply forgive Hamas? I've thought about this. Clearly there's two reasons. One is that um, Hamas has said they are committed to the total destruction of all Jews. Even if Israel did nothing, Hamas would continue on this path. It's part of their charter. For Hamas, Israel, sorry, for Israel, Hamas is an existential threat which must be removed. And the Bible actually talks about this. It says that evil deeds must be punished. In Romans 17, Paul points out that the rulers do not bear the sword in vain. A ruler is God's servant and an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. There are, um, so they have a right to respond to that when this terrible atrocity has occurred. But there are also limits to, uh, to judgment. Oops. Uh, the prophet Amos condemned Edom, 
um, because he said that he pursued his brother with the sword, stifling all compassion because his anger raged continually and his fury raged unchecked. And James points out that human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And we see even in Genesis 4 where Cain had killed his brother and God comes to him. He doesn't execute him as we might expect, but rather he shows him grace, but still sentences him to a fruitless life as a fugitive. So even in justice, there can be mercy. In the last day or so, the Israeli army has dropped flyers on the surrounding area on all throughout Hamas, uh, telling people that they should leave. And typically before they bomb a building, they would drop flyers and send text messages to those inside saying, you need to leave now because your building is going to be bombed. They get forewarning. That's their typical modus operandi. Hamas is um, not quite as um, uh, caring about people. They've been telling Gazans not to leave the city. They... um, have sometimes confiscated car keys and personal belongings to prevent people from leaving there. They want to have as many people in uh, um, Gaza City as possible. They often locate their offices and stores in hospital and in munitions in hospitals, schools and mosques, and they use their people as human shields. This is a, a, a admission by a Hamas leader that when he received a text that his building was going to be bombed, he got his family with the children and stood them all on the roof and then just waited. The Israelis saw that there were people there so they didn't bomb the building. This doesn't mean that um, Israel typically does not target non-combatants. This doesn't mean that they're without fault. Um, and and uh, Palestinians claim it's the harsh Israeli policies that have fueled Arab anger and made things worse. Over the last um, week, over 4,000, according to Palestinian numbers, over 4,000 Palestinians have been recorded as killed in airstrikes, 1,500 children, 800, um, 800 women. 50% of the population of Gaza is under, under 18. There are about 1,000 Christians in Gaza. I mentioned the Christian population. Yesterday, 18 of them were killed in an Israeli airstrike. They were sheltering in a church when an Israeli bomb hit the target next door and a wall collapsed inside the church and crushed them. So Jews and Muslims and Christians are dying in, uh, in this terrible tragedy. And peace won't come until there is some political solution and people are willing to live together as neighbours. But from a Christian perspective, true peace can only be found through Jesus. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the ultimate peacemaker. I was thinking about his, uh, the group of 12 disciples that he called. Among them was Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were a group famous for their guerrilla warfare and their terrorism against the Roman occupiers. And another man in the group was Matthew, who was uh, a tax collector. Matthew was collecting money from the Jews to give to the Romans. Matthew was a collaborator. So we had these two together, and only Jesus could transform hearts to bring these two together. In Galatians, Paul says, Jesus is the one who broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Jesus is ultimately the only hope for the Middle East. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
And so Jesus' followers, that is us, no matter what our view of history or theology or eschatology, we need to work towards peace. We need to work towards reconciliation. We need to seek justice for all people. Jesus' peace isn't just an absence of war, but an internal heart transformation, what he calls abundant life. It's a 360-degree transformation. It includes peace with God. We're reconciled with him. Peace within ourselves, peace with our families and friends and colleagues and neighbours, and even peace with our enemies if they're willing to accept it. This is the radical teaching that Jesus gives to us. Only Jesus can do that. And our calling as Christians is to take this uh, gospel of peace into the whole world. That's what he asks us to do. I'm going to just respond to the last questions that have come up. Have I got time to do that? I'm sorry. I'll just do a see uh, what's come up. I think a few happened. Um, and... Oops. Um, All right, someone said, I saw on the diagram, Jesus, 12, and then 72. What's the significance of the 72? The 72 was the number of nations um, uh, of the world um, listed in Genesis 10. And the message was, this is not a message only for the Jews, it's a message for the whole world. So that was the significance of that. Um, All right. Is it true that Israel is fed up with Israel taking up their place, which leads to the atrocities? This is what my parents told me. I'm not sure whether it could be misinformation. There is. There's a real sense amongst the Palestinians of having been badly treated. They will say, they say, look, we were given this land by the United Nations. Half of it was given to the Jews. They should have been content with that, but that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing. So they they really feel a sense of. um, When I learned Arabic, I learned from. um, Palestinians when I lived in Jordan and they were really quite upset because they'd been sent out from their homes. Um, and the last one, what are the reliable resources to follow and what's happening in the Middle East? Is there right unbiased news? Not really. Um, so you'll get to, yeah, you'll always get a, like an Arab perspective or, or an Israeli perspective. It's very hard, so you really need to, to read both sides of the, uh, of the, of the thing to get those. Let me just finish with a little appeal. In in Isaiah 6, the prophet records, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the angels cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of his glory. Heaven knows this, um, but does our earth know it? And God says, Whom will I send and who who will go for us? And Isaiah puts up his hand and he says, Here am I, Lord, send me. God is looking for people who will commit themselves to this call. People who will take the good news of his glory, the good news of his peace, the good news of his son into the world. And if you feel that God is calling you into joining his army of peacemakers, people who will share the peace of God, the good news of the gospel, I'm asking you after the service, maybe if you can come down the front so that we can pray for you, so one of the team can pray for you, and just discern what is God's next step for you. And join the meeting tonight, the worship time, where you'll be able to praise God and just discern a little bit more. God invites us all to be part of his great mission. Let's finish with prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God with a heart for the whole world 
And Lord, we know that that includes Jewish people and Muslim people, Palestinians, includes us and our neighbours. And pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful witnesses for you in every context. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, if I can just get the worship team to come up. Um, can we just give Dr. Bernie an, another hand? Yeah, just want to say thank you. I think you did an incredible work <laughs> to summarize the, the, the complexity of this. And, and I think it was just such a, as Sharon had shared, uh, a divine opportunity to be able to have um, Bernie. And I love the way you presented it, the history behind it, because sometimes it can be just too polarized, too simplistic. Uh, but the history behind it really helps us understand that you can continue listening to both sides until the cows come home, but really in only Jesus Christ that we're going to be in the middle. Can I hear an amen? Yeah? Um, as a worship team, um, uh, we're going to respond to worship. I just want to share one story and then we'll kind of give to a close and uh, follow up the response that um, Dr. Bernie has called for. Um, I got my hair cut this week. Um, I, I, I picked up my son on a side note. I picked up my son, my eight-year-old son from school, and then his friend came up to him and said, Who's that? Is that your granddad? So I decided to get a haircut. So anyway, when I got my haircut, um, uh, there was this new hairdresser in the place I usually go to, um, and he was from Iraq. Uh, two years in, I uh, recently migrated. Anyway, we were just chatting and stuff like that, and then later I just said to him, Look, I hope you don't mind me asking. I'd love to be able to hear what your perspective is and your uh, experience about what's happening with the war in the Middle East. And uh, he goes, look, I care about all human beings and, you know, like, uh, there's, there's loss on both sides. But then there's this statement that he said that really struck with me. And he just said, I tell you the truth, brother. You know, it was our land. It belonged to us. How would you feel if it was got t- taken away from us? Well, what, what was rightfully belonged to us? But what stood out to me was that whole phrase, my brother, I'll tell you the truth. And here I am, uh, when this war started, I was listening to a whole bucket load of news and different information. This is the truth. This is the truth. This is the truth. And it's like, how on earth are you going to reconcile that? And and during that time, it really brought uh, this passion and burden in my heart, which Dr. Bernie shared so poignantly at the end. It's like Jesus says, doesn't say this is the truth, this is the truth. He says, I am the truth. Amen? Because the truth is not just facts. It's not just information. The truth is the person of Jesus Christ. And in Him, we see the reality of the world of facts with God in the picture. Right? With Jesus Christ in the picture. And here Jesus offers this amazing invitation to say, I am the truth. Because it's only in Christ and what He has done at that cross can He transform the human heart. Because we live our lives from our hearts. And it's in that heart that He can transform and and remove the rage of revenge, but also the pain of injustice. I mean, I'll put myself in that situation. Imagine if I was on either side and you experienced that loss. How do you overcome the anger? How do you overcome the hatred? How do you deal with injustice? And then that's when it just comes to mind. It's like, that is the beauty of what God had offered through the person of Jesus Christ. Can I hear anyway? And it's on that cross that He shows us 
This is how we deal with the pain of injustice because there will be a time when God will judge every single thing that has been said and done on this earth. But on the other hand, how do you overcome the rage of revenge because it's in, on that cross that Jesus gives us the forgiveness of sins and extends mercy. And when you look at that, you hear that, you go, what a beautiful truth. Can I hear an amen? And that is the gospel that we have. And so when I heard all this stuff, I guess one of the key burdens as a senior pastor of the church is going, you know what? We need to stop playing church and start really believing that we have something really powerful that the world needs. Do you believe that? That we have the gospel and that is the only thing that has the power to transform the human heart. Yes, we need the politics. Yes, we need the peacemaking. Yes, we need all these things. But what is the mandate for us as God's people and the church of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what God has given into each and every one of us. And my question to each and every one of us is this. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that we have something powerful and a mission that God has positioned on us that we will rise above just playing church and go, let's take this mission seriously. Let's be a people that says, here I am, God. Whatever context we might find it, whether you find yourself getting a haircut from someone from Iraq, or whether you're having conversations with your uh, workers, workmates around these issues, or someone who might be a lawyer, who's, you know, their, their partners are all Jewish. How do we respond, right? And that's why I thought it was a beautiful thing what Dr. Bernie had brought, to bring that balance, to be able to go, be peacemakers through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen? Yeah? So when we rise to our feet, and then I'll just invite the prayer team to come up. Uh, and then as uh, Dr. Bernie has shared, if you want to respond as someone who's saying, here I am, God, I want to be a peacemaker uh, of the gospel. We'd love to be able to pray for you, but also pray for any other particular needs. Uh, tonight, there is the um, prayer and worship night that we want to be able to create a space of encounter that God can speak to us. Um, and uh, let me just pray, and then we'll I'll hand it over uh, to the team. Lord God, I just want to thank you, Lord. I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for the good news that has the power to transform the human heart. God, I thank you that you set the model for us, not just to bring political change or social reform, but you knew at the heart of it all, our heart needed to be changed. Our heart needed to be saved from sin. And out of that transformed heart and transformed relationship with you, we are able to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So Lord God, I just pray right now, God, you give us wisdom, help us to be peacemakers, give us the burden and the conviction to know what it is that you have entrusted to us as your people, that we can go forth and push your mission forward in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.